This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, serial entrepreneur William Reeve has put out fires, taken on Amazon and won, and is now hellbent on taking the financial pain out of renting and letting property. They walked into the large boardroom, and there in the middle of the boardroom was a a made-up double bed. That created the the shock factor that I was looking for, Um, and my, my kind of message for these guys was, I need you guys to be intimate with each other. And I need you guys. Those to are the be words you used. Those, those were the words I used. I said, "Those, you know, we need, we need, we need the technologies part of the business working absolutely hand in glove with the rest of the business, and I need that change immediately." William Reeve, founder and CEO of Good Lord and chairman of Nutmeg, thanks so much for joining me on the FN Tech podcast. Morning, Elliot, and thanks for having me. Uh, now, William, you've got your fingers in a number of pies. Uh, tell me briefly what Good Lord does, uh, what it's raised, and, and what the plan is. Uh, so, Good Lord is a software platform uh, with a mission to make the best renting experience in the world. And we're used mostly by UK letting agents uh, who then bring us uh, their landlords and tenants and guarantors and all that sort of stuff into the platform. And we help, we help uh, ensure that the process of uh, taking on a new let, a moving house, or just staying in the rental property they're already in is as slick and user-friendly as possible. And you're also chairman of, of Nutmeg. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so Nutmeg is, the, um, is Europe's leading uh, digital wealth management platform. Um, we have, um, we've been going for some years now in the UK. We've got uh, a few billion um, of customers' money invested for them in, uh, on a long-term, low-cost, diversified index tracking um, basis that's uh, essentially just a sort of uh, textbook way of investing your money but without all the fees and aggro and hassle that you'd get from the traditional wealth management industry. Okay so uh, we'll come back to uh, Good Lord and, and Nutmeg a little bit later on because I'm what I'm really interested in is, is your journey uh, to, to where we are today. Um, I mean you founded or played a critical role in a number of well-known startups, including Love Film, Zoopla, and, and Secret Escapes. But your entrepreneurial journey began much earlier, when you were nothing but a teenager. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I was the classic computer geek uh, in my teens. Um, very fortunate going to a school that took computers seriously, had a, had a well-resourced computer room. Um, and I, um, I, I took that pretty seriously and, and co-wrote a computer game that actually um, was published professionally uh, and um, as, as well as actually taking me into doing a couple of other game related projects as a, as a, in my late teens. And one of your games uh, was even picked up and, and you know you kind of uh, almost had a little business there right? What, what, was, that, what was that about and, and what happened? Yeah so um, it, it's less of being a, less of a business actually if truth be told than, than sort of being a published kind of author effectively um, but we were um, my friend Ian Holmes and I were were, um, were looking at the obviously avid games players being teenage boys and uh, looking at the other games 
uh, as through the eyes of players, but also I suppose sort of professionally thinking actually we, we reckon we could do one of these, and um, we've figured out a way of of, um, of, of building um, the, the key one of the key games at the time. We figured out a way of doing it essentially better and faster, uh, and so we built a game called Pipeline. Um, and luckily for us, one of the leading publishers at the time, Superior Software, was really on a drive to encourage kind of new new pub, new games writers. And they'd published a guide on how to do all this. Uh, and so we sort of got hold of that guide, read it, which, strange enough, it said published through them. Uh, but we were very lucky because although they were the top publisher uh, and had the pick of the, pick of the crop, they, uh, they'd sort of they liked our game. So that was all going swimmingly. Um, it was a four-way scrolling game where you were set on the North Sea oil rig trying to put out fires uh, when, unfortunately, tragedy struck and the Piper Alpha North Sea oil disaster hit. Uh, and um, much as uh, my rather naive young self thought that was good pu- marketing and publicity for us, uh, the sort of wiser heads at Superior ruled that uh, it wasn't it wasn't that wasn't good taste, and we asked us to rejig the game set into a setting on one of the moons of the planet Jupiter, which in, was just a cosmetic change, but. Uh, GCSEs and boredom were starting to intrude, so um, actually took us quite a long time. And that, that time, that time, unfortunately, probably saw the the market we're in the eight bit the eight bit computer game market we're in rather go off the boil. And I think that cost us cost us sales. Um, but it, it, it didn't make very much money out of it. But certainly for a sort of you know teenager who hadn't even done a paper round at that point, it was my first taste of kind of um, actually kind of what what you can what you can make financially out of. Um, Creative endeavours. Uh, and sorry, what was it you made from from the sale? Ian and I each made a couple of thousand pounds of advance, and then uh, there wasn't much in the way of trail royalties. There was a bit. Um, so, goodness, pardon my language, what that's worth these days. But uh, you know, certainly it was quite handy about pocket money. Sure, as a 15, 16 year old, that must have been uh, uh, like uh, almost like winning winning the pools in those days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, you you went to Oxford University. You studied engineering, economics, and management. You joined McKinsey as a management consultant, but, but it wasn't long before you kind of caught the entrepreneurial bug again, if it ever left you, and, and then went off to set up your own company. I was on a two-year program at McKinsey, so it sort of forced you to um, kind of jump off, the, jump off the diving board, I suppose, and uh, beg the question of kind of what were you going to jump into. Um, and one of my close friends and I, uh, Neil Bradford, and I decided that actually, rather than sort of jumping into the obvious pool that management consultants tend to jump into, which was an MBA or something. We, this, this, we, if we were ever going to set up a business, this would be a good chance to set up a business. So we both kind of thought that was a brilliant idea and agreed to do that and do it with each other. And left the only question being, what would the business be? And um, being McKinsey consultants, we obviously opened up a spreadsheet and started to kind of work out kind of what opportunities there were out there and which ones might be good fits for us and things like that. And uh, that that, um, that led to us setting up a company called Fletcher Research. The first product was a re- management report about um, digital TV and football. Um, but uh, from there on in, we focused on the internet and providing research to UK corporates uh, about the internet, what it, what it was going to mean for them and how it was progressing in the UK. And we knew, I suppose, from our time at McKinsey, just how desperate the kind of largest organisations in the UK were for facts, data analysis about the internet in the UK, which was, this was in the late 90s, so um, people didn't really know how to spell www. <laughs> and of course, this wasn't just your first successful startup, successful company. Uh, it also 
ended up being your first successful exit as well. Yes, that's right. Um, no, we were we were growing away. We'd really found ourselves in a good spot in in um, in the market at that point. We'd become the leading player in the UK of our type, and we were very fortunate, actually, um, both timing-wise and identity-wise, that um, the company that we probably most admired in the space, which is an American firm called Forrester Research, took a shine to us. And uh, as as I'd quite a lot of other companies, in fairness, but we weren't we weren't growing the business to sell it. We were growing it to to be a successful business but we did we met we met Forrester and we really um, got on well with them and they made us an offer to buy the company and we actually just felt we could do better as part of them than we could do by ourselves so we, we accepted that offer which was a for a life changing amount of money at least on paper it was a it was a, a all uh, paper deal um, not realising actually that the timing was very fortuitous because this was late 90s and it, unbeknownst to us the uh dot-com bubble was going to pop a few months later um, but uh, you know, that was another story Can you say how much that was that you kind of cleared from your kind of first big exit there? Um, it, was, it was several million pounds um, was what it worked out as for me and you know, for both, both Neil and I um, both Neil and I were sort of equal partners in the business so, so we both made uh, we both made a pretty life-changing amount of money out of it So you've sold Fletcher to Forrester uh, but you didn't hang around there for too long either um, and not necessarily for the reasons people might expect I had met an Australian woman and uh, we wanted to get married and get married in Australia and take a suitably shall we say uh, other uh, other side of the world amount of holiday and my um, American uh, bosses were not so keen on this didn't really understand the concept of long holidays and um, so I said well fair enough um, I am leaving but I may not be coming back immediately and they were, we were actually very good natured about it and they gave me a, a sort of sabbatical arrangement but um, by the time that I was kind of ready to think of what to do next the, their world had had gone from as I said boom to bust and uh, they, they didn't, didn't seem such an enticing place to return to so I, I kind of went off and, and, and started looking at what else to do next back in uh, London I, I, had, I had moved to Amsterdam for the last couple, 18 months of my Forrester time, which was fantastic, actually, great adventure. But I, 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 brought, I brought the new wife back to London, and that was where I sort of started the next chapter. Right, and I think that next chapter was, uh, you, you teamed up with uh, Alex Chesterman, who, who's the founder of Zoopla, and, and uh, decided to ape Netflix with a, a company that's very well known in the UK, at least, called Love Film. Uh, why did you choose to go into that business? Yes, so, I mean, back then, um, you, you, you sort of, you've kind of spoiled the punchline already really because back then um, Alex was not nearly as well known as he was today um, but Alex and I had both independently um, we'd never met each other at this point but we'd both independently spotted Netflix and we were at, among with a whole bunch of other talented entrepreneurs in the UK actually uh, and we were both interested in that business model and whether what one could do with it in the UK and um, the problem I saw was that there were several other people already doing it actually and I didn't immediately see a way of winning in the space and wasn't interested in doing something I couldn't win and uh, so I'd sort of was sort of I'd been sniffing around the space but hadn't hadn't formed a plan and I got a call one day from um, an investor who I knew who I'd met who said um, you know that DVD rental thing you were talking about I've met another chapter now you should meet him uh, and uh, he's, he's quite an experienced entrepreneur he said he, he's uh, he set up Bagel Mania uh, and I was just like, okay. I didn't immediately see the link from really across from bagel, bagels to um, 
DVDs, but they are both round and have a hole in the middle, I suppose. And I, um, I met Alex, and Alex was a bit more further ahead than me in his thinking and was not going to let the presence of a few pesky competitors put him off. Um, but uh, I think it did become clear to both of us that we could help each other and do better together than independently. So we ended up teaming up and um, creating um, you know, what became what became the love film business, which in turn has become the Amazon Prime video business. Right, uh, but I mean, just before we, we get to that bit, uh, I mean, you were, you're in that market, you know there are competitors there, then Blockbuster comes in, then Amazon comes in, uh, you know, these weren't just normal competitors we're talking about. These are very deep-pocketed competitors with a huge amount of experience in the space. How did you get one over on them? Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And in fact, at some point or other, there were over 20 different offerings in the UK, including uh, Tesco and um, a couple of the video chains, Odeon and View, and the, the main newspaper, which like The Guardian at the time. So we found ourselves unexpectedly in one of the most competitive markets in the world actually Blockbuster did eventually launch in the US but well after the UK and Amazon never launched the service in the US so um, and we were in the market of Sky of course which is a, you know, one of the best uh, pay TV broadcasters in the world um, so uh, yeah that wasn't that wasn't a bag of a bed of roses uh, but one of the tricks to it was that we always knew we'd have competition and we did try and build the business to be resilient to that and in fact we um, we ended up uh, arming some of our competitors, in effect. So when I say there were over 20 offerings in the UK, quite a few of those were ours. Uh, so we powered the Tesco one, we powered the Guardian one, we powered the Odeon one, for example. So um, there was a, there was the more of an, more of the illusion of choice than there was um, the actual competition against us. Um, but and when Amazon launched, which was not a good day. Um, we had already signed up Tesco as a partner. We had signed up Microsoft as a partner, MSN, uh, which back then was a big website, and we signed. We'd signed up several others. So actually, the combined online reach of our partners was significantly bigger than Amazon's, and we knew that you know we weren't just going to roll over and play dead, basically. So um, we also had better technology than them for what we were doing. Ours was entirely focused and purpose-built for DVD rental and theirs wasn't uh, and we um, we had already assembled quite a brand name actually and, and had supplier relationships and I think I can't I, I, I can't quite believe that kind of what, what appears to have happened happened but it does it did seem as if Amazon just assumed that because it bought DVDs from, from the likes of Warner and Universal that, it, that, that meant it could enter the rental market with an advantage and actually it, that isn't the case because the rental and retail markets are very different and the Warner you know, dealing with totally different people with different rights, and literally the rental guys will sort of say to you, if, if all your if your relationship with the studio has just been on the, re- the retail side, the rental guys will literally be like, who are you? So um, actually, they they we we already had very strong relationships with a lot of studios, so we we were we were able to um, actually prove much more formidable competitor than I think Amazon was expecting, at least in the UK. They 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 did a much better job in Germany where we. We hadn't really established, in fact, we hadn't established a foothold at all when they launched, and we found Germany much tougher going. Right, and then there's, of course, the small matter of Netflix. Now, I know that today everyone kind of sees Netflix as this great um, executor of its business plan, uh, uh, but it has made some 
cock-ups over the years, including when they went up against you, or when they almost went up against you, I should say. Well, yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I, I, I do perceive them to have made quite a few cock-ups, but I'm, I can't say that going up against us was one of them. But they did um, uh, lose quite a lot of money in the UK at that point because they identified the UK as their first market. This was before Amazon came along, but I think after Blockbuster entered the market. And they'd identified the UK as their first overseas market, and they'd uh, hired quite a chunky team actually in Covent Garden, and, and bought a or rented a warehouse in Peterborough, and bought several millions worth of DVD stock. Uh, and this was this was back in two thousand and four and five, I think. And um, and they um, they hadn't actually turned their website on for the UK, so it wasn't a live service. Uh, but um, Essentially, the month that Amazon announced that they had entered entered the space in the UK and Germany, uh, Netflix pulled out of the UK and wrote off the five million. In fact, we managed to buy quite a lot of their ex stock off them and some of their warehouse equipment and stuff. So um, we made a bit of money out of Netflix actually. Uh, but uh, yes, they uh, they never entered the UK again during my my time in the business. I mean, I left the business several years later, and they did they did launch they did launch in the UK. Um, shortly afterwards but not um, not during my time amazing how fearful netflix was yeah. just at the prospect of amazon coming into the market uh, and i guess you know it just shows it's always it's always good to do your kind of research and know exactly what's going on because perhaps if they knew um how ill-prepared amazon was at the time in the uk they, they wouldn't have been so so fearful but but eventually you sold love film to amazon for a reported Two hundred million dollars or so, um, but you'd already left by then. Why, why did you? Why did you Scarpa? We we do, we found ourselves acquiring quite a lot of our competitors and merging with with them and so forth. And we um, we we became the kind of consolidated business, and it was our platform that kind of uh, became the underlying business. But in that process, we gave most of the other businesses we acquired shares in our company, so they could sort of join us on the journey. But that left us, me and Alex, and so on, very much uh, smaller and ever smaller and smaller shareholders diluted heavily along the way and um, most of in fact we also of course it, it, the same perspective was shared by our, the founders of our competitors who we bought and who became smaller shareholders in our business and so uh, effectively none of the founders in the business had more than a few percent of the company by 2006 and uh, we um, I think most, most of the founders sort of was Fan thought there were probably better things to do with their time than than work for something they only held a couple of percent in, and I was the last one to to get to that point. Um, but um, the, for me, uh, actually, the, the sort of final the final chapter of my part of Love Film was um, actually Amazon Amazon declared us the victors effectively, and 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 at this point we're still competing with them, and we but we we'd beaten them fairly convincingly in the UK, and although their German business was beating ours it was much smaller than our UK business so we were we were well ahead of them in total European numbers and they said to us look we'd much rather have uh, own a piece of the winner than uh, an entire loser and why don't we can we can we can we throw our business into yours and become a minority shareholder in your business and that's what happened so and I I managed that transaction and post-merger operational integration with them uh, first in the UK and then in Germany and that really, from my point of view, kind of felt like a good point to leave. It was we'd sort of seen off all of our competitors. We'd established ourselves as clearly the the kind of European leader. Uh, Amazon had become a big investor and shareholder of the business, and um, I left uh, in two thousand eight. 
bad timing actually in so as I, I wasn't paying any attention to the global financial crisis at that point so anyway that's another story but right. um, I was at that point Alex had, ha- had asked me to help him with stuff and, and anyway we, we kind of got busy and, and in the end um, Amazon and the other shareholders of the film uh, found themselves as they were trying to work out how to exit the business they found themselves um Agreeing to let Amazon buy out the remaining investors in Love Film and take it over, and that's what happened in 2010. Right, and I mean, I suppose you know when you are so diluted and it's you know it's still ostensibly your your company and a company that you founded and and, and led, you know you end up effectively being an employee, which perhaps isn't what you you signed up for. And um, I was having an interesting conversation with uh, Christian Faze, the co-founder of Lend Invest, and. He was telling me, uh, you know, he and his partner still own about three quarters of the business because they bootstrapped it for as long as they could. I mean, looking back, do you do you wish that maybe you try to find a way to, you know, maintain your your equity levels in in Love Film? I mean, you had some cash stashed away from the sale of, uh, of Fletcher, right? So perhaps you you could have, you know, risked some of your your own funds in there and would have come out more on top and, and felt more like an owner of the business. Yeah, good question, Elliot, and. I one of the reasons why I didn't jump straight into the Netflix cloning business was that I could Netflix had um, released its accounts and you could see how much money it was losing. And in fact, to this day, I mean, obviously Netflix is one of the most valuable companies in the US these days, but it, that is not because it's made money. And in fact, it's just chewed up cash. And its business model, frankly, in the streaming world, is very still very very questionable. Twenty years on, so um, the it was clear to me that. Um, that there would be quite a lot of cash required for this business, even in the UK, and that if I were to risk my own capital on it, I'd be risking my kind of newfound financial independence, which I was not keen to do. So it was always fairly obvious you'd need third-party investors. That said, I think we could have, we did make a couple of missteps along that consolidation journey, and we could have ended up with a bigger share than we had. And I certainly think our investors probably didn't appreciate fully the value that the likes of Alex in particular could add to the business. So, you know, it was actually, you know, the, the, invest, the investors were, uh, if anything, probably feeling hastened Alex's departure from the business, uh, which proved to be profoundly stupid. And then they compounded that stupidity by not investing in his next business, Zoopla. So with, uh, they, um, you know, they, were, they, they didn't understand probably the value that the entrepreneurs in the business brought to the business. Right. Uh, so, uh You've you've left Love Film. Uh, global financial crisis is uh, is kind of uh, incipient, or is, is is about to kind of explode. What did you do next? Well, um, so I had been asked by a couple of the people I met in the Love Film journey, um, and actually, I should say that while financially the Love Film journey was not that successful for me, the um, the best thing about it and the biggest sort of return I got out of it, if you like, was the, the kind of people I met in that journey. Some of the most talented people I've, I've ever met were, were guys I met in the love film process. So, so two or three of them, uh, I was very fortunate to be uh, asked um, to help. So Graham Bosher was off setting up Gray's uh, revolutionary sort of mail order snack business. Uh, and he asked me to help. And Alex was off setting up Zoopla and asked me to help. Uh, and I was I was doing those as a non-exec and and looking actually at um, buying um, such a management buyout of another business I knew, which got properly kiboshed by the Lehman Brothers sort of financial meltdown, 
so that left me uh, be it sort of taking on another couple of non-execs and, and being a plural, sort of pluralist for want of a better word, uh, going plural um, for a little while and um, and sort of experimenting with a couple of projects which didn't come to very much but which you know kept me busy and that so Secret Escapes was one of became one of those those non-execs actually through uh, through serendipity really I found myself on the board of a small travel business comparison travel business with three very talented founders who um, you know we uh, I, I kind of uh, persuaded they're in the wrong business they should set up a they should set up Secret Escapes which they did uh, and I was on the board of a Cambridge based tech business called True Knowledge which actually had, in the end Amazon ended up buying so there's a bit of a pattern there uh, and after I left, which is another pattern, uh, and um, uh, and I also was actually asked uh, by um, Paddy Power, one of the top British and Irish uh, betting businesses, to take a seat on their board too. So I was kind of kept off the streets by being on people's boards. Right. Really. And sorry, you mentioned True Knowledge. Uh, you, the, the, that was the origins of, of something particularly groundbreaking, wasn't it? Yeah. So True, true Knowledge um, was a. Uh, natural language question answering service uh, and Amazon ended up buying it to build Alexa so the kind of um, uh, secret source behind um, that, that that box of tricks um, was um, was the sort of Cambridge technology originally called True Knowledge later renamed to EV, EVI um, but yeah that, that IP um, turned out to be critical for Amazon's grand plan uh, so um, you mentioned the financial crisis or the Lehman Brothers uh, implosion affecting your uh, attempts to buy a company. But I think uh, on the other side, it actually helped. Uh, you, were, you were kind of involved with uh, Alex a little bit with, uh, with Zoopla and it kind of helped, helped kind of turn Zoopla, the financial crisis helped in a way turn Zoopla uh, or give it the opportunity to become what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, you know, there's that old adage, isn't there? Um, which I think is attributed to Rahm Emanuel, uh, that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, and um, it doesn't feel like that when you're in the middle of the crisis, of course. But um, in Zoopla's case, it turned out that um, the, one of the transformational moments of that business was um, enabled by the crisis because uh, the financial crisis kind of happened first. Uh, that precipitated a sort of market crisis and that precipitated a property crisis uh, so the pro- property prices fell and property volumes plummeted and so estate agents all got into a world of pain and that meant that the property portals all got took took the heat and one of the second tier portals property funder and was owned by a couple of the newspaper groups in the uk and australia and they were all frantically fighting their own fire so they just wanted to offload it as as urgently as possible as a loss-making, losing business. And that gave Alex the opportunity to acquire the business very cheaply and um, and he managed to, to turn it around. So, um, How cheaply was that? Well, I mean, less than I've got in my wallet at the moment, I seem to remember. Um, so, um, and, I, and I don't carry much cash in the modern age. Uh, so, um, the it gave Alex, I mean, it relied, Alex took a big risk because the business was hemorrhaging cash. Uh, and uh, and and if he hadn't been able to stem those losses, he would have, you know, Zupra and and this property fund would have gone bust within months. So um, he took a big risk on that. But he was very much backed actually by the investors because we all we all knew him and we'd worked with him at Lufthansa or wherever. And 
knew just how um, effective an operator he is and how how successfully we, we thought he'd be able to cut costs and, and and integrate the businesses, which indeed is what he managed to do. So uh, I think it wasn't a very well-run business. It had you know multiple offices and sort of fleets of company cars and God knows what. So um, all of that went and um, and and very quickly Alex got it from a kind of loss-making business to a roughly break-even business, and suddenly he'd acquired his way to. 10 million annual revenues. And it was from there really that Zoopla started to really proceed from strength to strength. Right, because at the time Zoopla, I think was, uh, its, its USP was giving you a valuation on, on your property or other properties. And then with Property Finder, it, it then was able to turn itself into this, you know, jack of all trades for property uh, uh, property portal for, for valuations, for yeah, finding exactly, homes and everything else. Exactly, so Zoopla had, um, Zuplica's kind of entree into the market, sort of secret source had been its uh, free valuations. Uh, it, I don't think it ever claimed to doing this. I think of it as having really coined the concept of property porn because it enabled you to look up, you know, your mother-in-law's house and see how much it was worth. Um, and no, nobody had done that before. Certainly not. You know, your traditional way of getting a valuation was to talk to an agent, and you couldn't ask your agent what your mother-in-law's house was worth. Uh, so. Um, that was very successful at building traffic, but it, it and, and from the traffic, of course, uh, le- agents are interested because that traffic contains the buyers and sellers that the agents need to need to find. So, but it was just a very long, hard slog um, signing up the agents, especially against the teeth of um, other 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 bigger portals. Uh, and so, by being able to um, buy Property Finder, which was the number three or four of the space, and had several thousand agents already as customers but didn't have this valuation model and didn't have the kind of user-friendly website design that Alex and his team had built. Uh, he was able to combine both the sort of best-in-class website with a, with a clear differentiator of the valuations alongside a, you know, a very large slug of the market as existing customers and that, that combination proved, uh, proved to be successful and enable the Zupa to relentlessly gain share um, and ultimately it then did one more key acquisition which was with the um, Daily Mail property group that owned prime location and find a property and that that created a business that was very much a ri- an effective rival to Rightmove, the market leader. Of course Zoopla wasn't your baby, you were you know, working with your uh, former co-founder uh, Alex Chesterman um, but now you are back in in the property business uh, to an extent. Uh, tell, tell me more about Good Lord. And, and you said to ask you about a, a story about a double bed. Uh, I'm not sure what that entails, but I'm certainly intrigued. Well, I'd never actually heard of Good Lord in 2017. And towards the end of 2017, I got rung up by Robin Klein, who's one of the probably best, best known, best respected uh, early stage investors in London. Uh, and I'd known Robin for some years. He's one of the people I met on the Love Film journey. Uh, he was one of the invest- angel investors behind Love Film. Uh, and so he got to see how good Alex was and he, he backed Alex at Zoopla and he and I were on the board together of Zoopla actually for a few years. And then he had, Robin had gone on to set up a investment fund which had backed Good Lord. So he rang me and said, look, I, um, I've, I've got this business here I really could do with some help and I think it would be a really interesting fit for you because it's a software platform with a lot of interesting opportunities ahead of it but in the, in the property space and it's got a couple of challenges right now around 
execution. Basically, it just it had just um, lost its CEO, uh, and it's had a big question mark over its technology because um, the technology it had been working for quite a while on a next generation technology platform. There was in quotes three months away from launch, end quotes, but had been three months away from launch for quite a long time. So um, he said, I, I, I really could do with some help. Can you kind of, um, even if it's just on a temporary basis, can you kind of go in and sort of see what you make of this and see if you can help them kind of, uh, kind of get, get, get into the next stage? And so I originally agreed actually to do that on a fairly short-term basis. Uh, and ultimately we sort of, you know, we sort of fell in love with each other to a level I've ended up taking a you know, permanent long-term role. But originally I was there very much on a short-term basis just with a, with a mandate to try and figure out how to fix things and um, one of the very first things I realised it was actually um, the, the other irony here was I was about to go on holiday for three weeks to Australia uh, which was an immovable object uh, and um, so I, w- I was going in for about a week just before I went on holiday and I could immediately see there was a big problem which was that there was 20 people on the technology team frantically trying to build this new technology platform. Uh, and they were in a different building from the rest of the business. They hadn't really spoken to the rest of the business, some of them for months. Uh, none of the company's clients had sort of caught wind of this new platform or it had any exposure to it. And so conversely, the technology team hadn't spoken to any customers about it. Uh, and um, there was just a huge sort of gulf in communications, breakdown in communications between the technology side of the business and the, the, the kind of rest of the business. And I was trying to work out how to fix that fast, knowing that I was then going to be out away on holiday for three weeks uh, down in Australia. So I knew I had to do something pretty radical and I, I kind of organised uh, a kind of war council, or I don't know what you call it, uh, a kind of brains trust, the, the kind of key 20 or so opinion formers and, and sort of movers and shakers in the business uh, at, at first, first thing in the morning meeting at nine o'clock uh, and uh, from both sides of the business the technology and, and the rest of the business and I I rang my um, I rang the sort of the COO of the business Tom Mundy a very talented character uh, about, about an hour beforehand at eight in the morning and said Tom uh, I, I've got a slightly crazy idea can you help me with it and uh he listened to my idea and he, he said, it's a bit of an ask, but let's, let's see what we can do. And um, so there, but, but by nine o'clock in the morning, I was helped here by the fact that Tom, Tom lived around the corner from the, uh, the office. But um, by nine o'clock in the morning, when we had these 20 people assembled from scratch at sort of three-line whip uh, status, they walked into the large boardroom. And there in the middle of the boardroom was a, a made-up double bed in the middle of the middle of the boardroom. So... Uh, that that created the, the shock factor that I was looking for, um, and my, my kind of message for these guys was, you know, I, you know, I need I need you guys to get, uh, 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 I need you I need you guys to be intimate with each other, and I need you guys to be working. Those are the words you used. Those, those were the words I used. I said those you know we need we we need to get the technology that this new platform. Um, actually, no, it wasn't quite that, put that way. Anyways, we need we need the technologies part of the business working absolutely hand in glove with the rest of the business and I need that change immediately and while I'm away I need you to figure out how to do that and that must include you guys working in the same 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 physical space as each other uh, and um, I um, 
and not an, I'm not asking for anything uh, illegal or immoral, but I want pretty much uh, anything else I can get that it, it gets you guys uh, collaborating properly and acting as one team. And I think that the crazy stunt of having the bed in the room kind of made the made them gave the message the impact I wanted that uh, it was really looking for rapid change and and that I think it it did work it did have an impact it did mean that the time the next three weeks when I was away uh, a lot of a lot of change happened so by the time I returned there was, there was a very clear difference very visible for all to see right and it's interesting because you've got a, a pretty decent view of the kind of digital economy um from different perspectives, not just on the property side, but also as in your role as chairman of Nutmeg. Uh, as a kind of robo-advisor or a digital wealth manager, whatever you want to call it, have you noticed any changes, uh, any impact from the coronavirus pandemic on that? Because, of course, we've seen certain shares and, and, uh, and, and indexes kind of recovering rapidly and going great guns. Um, but I'm just wondering if people are kind of more inclined to save or have less money to save or if that's, uh, uh, you know, given renewed impetus to people going kind of digital rather than uh, dealing with, uh, with humans uh, in, the, in the context of uh, managing their wealth and pensions and things. Yeah, so, uh, look, I think it's been, a, it's been quite a roller coaster ride, actually, in the world of assets and wealth. Um, with I think three different factors kind of all going through their own cycles. So one is the stock market, which of course fell more rapidly, fell fell fast, fell far fast and far uh, in March, and more rapidly than it ever has before. Uh, and that's one of the factors. But of course, subsequently has rebounded. Uh, the next factor is just disposable income, and actually that has by and large been a big positive uh, over the lockdown because uh, the sort of furlough arrangements in the UK have largely speaking kept people's incomes intact while their costs have plummeted, uh, especially in London where you know, they've not been having to commute and they're kind of, for two or three months they weren't able to dine out and things like that. So, so by and large people have, have accumulated surplus cash. Uh, but then the third factor is confidence, which has been yo-yoing. So at point, so actually I think from Nutmeg's point of view, uh, depending on how those three factors have interrelated at any one time, we've seen we've seen pretty decent uh, metrics, or we've seen sort of slightly uh, uh, worrying metrics. And it's uh, I think it's still too early to tell what the kind of longer term impact on the sector is going to be of the of, the, of 2020 and the pandemic. But you've not seen any of these kind of gains that you know, say, payment companies or other fintechs have experienced uh, as a result of of the lockdowns and, and uh, government responses to the pandemic. You don't, you know, it's not like uh, Nutmeg is now like a, a year or two further ahead than you expected it to be as a result of it. It's kind of, the jury's still out on... on no, on I'd say, you know, we, look, we've, we've got a very long-term orientation. We, we help people invest for the long-term. We're taking a long-term view on the business. Uh, and I'd say that within that, you're, you're always expecting there to be ups and downs. And, you know, the, roughly speaking, the, the world for us looks roughly where we expected it to look. I think... What we're not into is helping people speculate and sort of, you know, spend sort of spend time as a hobby kind of with with money. So the, the businesses that, you know, the kind of uh, day trading, uh, gamblingy type type apps. You know, whether that is literally the gambling businesses or it's the, um, you know, the kind of Robinhood type type sort of free free stock trading type apps. I think those guys have 
have been making an awful lot of hay, um, but uh, but I think that's a very different market because it's much more short-term speculation than kind of you know looking after your future self. Just finally, William, uh, you know we've talked about a number of companies that you've been involved with, whether it's your very first company that you set up, Fletcher, whether it's uh, Love Film, Zoopla, Grays, now Nutmeg, and uh, Good Lord. Uh, I don't seem to recall you mentioning any failures among any of those. Have you never had a, a failure in your uh, kind of entrepreneurial career? Oh, I, I, I certainly have. Um, but when you're as old as me, you, you've, uh, you get time to, to find a reasonable number of successes, even, even if your, your success rate isn't as high as you'd like it to be. Um, I think um, one of the businesses which has failed, which is, which I still, it's very, I still am very sad that it's, it's, it doesn't exist, is an online grocery business called Hubbub which um, I joined as a sort of a very actively involved angel investor which was founded by a, a lady, a qualified barrister actually, and it was on a mission to help the local high street stores um, kind of um, work in the, in the online world. Of course, post in the pandemic world, it would have been thriving because everything to do with online food delivery has been, been, has been receiving a huge boost this year. Um, but... Um, we we just couldn't get enough money into the business, and I think we found ourselves in a in a difficult place always between the kind of the sorts of customers who really like the local shops who tend to prefer to buy themselves physically, uh, and the ones who don't really value the local shops are sort of happy to use the kind of main corporate grocers and Mercado and whatever. Um, don't really uh, were very difficult to prize off that service. So we 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 found ourselves in a, with a business that was. But we couldn't. We didn't believe we could ever get it to a level that it would be able to um, exit successfully. We, we did. We did manage to get it profitable, uh, but uh, we did. We couldn't. We couldn't see a path to giving investors a return, so we had to close it down. Uh, sorry, we, we managed. We managed to get it to be just about profitable, but not not at a level where it could pay for itself, and not not at a level where we could ask investors to put more money in. So we 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 regretfully had to close it down. And when I speak to other founders and entrepreneurs a lot of the time you know they talk about a failure that they had that was really helpful because you know they learned great lessons and that helped them become the successful entrepreneurs they are today did, did you find it helpful to have a couple of failures among all the successes or could you have quite happily live without them i think uh i, th- I, th- I think you learn something from from everything and and even the successes have you make you make mistakes in uh, as we did in some of the consolidation, we did a love film, for example, uh, and um, and even the failures have successes, like some of the people you meet. So, I think you've always got to be learning. And I'm not somebody who kind of imagines myself uh, retiring and sort of stopping work because I sort of I think I'm one of those people who, who, as long as I'm learning, I'm going to keep doing. And the easiest way for me to learn is to work with talented people, and I want to keep doing that as long as I can. Great. Well, on that uh, on that note, uh, thank you so much, William Reeve, founder and uh, CEO of uh, Good Lord and chairman of Nutmeg. Really appreciate your taking the time to join us on the FM Tech podcast. Thank you, Elliot, um, and good luck with uh, the rest of the show. If you take a look at William's LinkedIn profile, you'll see we barely scratched the surface of his varied yet hugely successful entrepreneurial journey, which all began with that video game he co-created in his teens. Of course, putting out fires, be they on an oil rig, the moons of Jupiter, or the metaphorical kind, is something founders do every day. And while ideas and raw ambition are valuable traits for any entrepreneur, experience with successes and the odd failure can be priceless. 
So thank you, William Reeve, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can get updates as well as listen to all previous episodes via the website f-in-tech.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at podfintech or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye bye.